0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. I hope you all had a very happy Memorial Day weekend, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Heather Arison. I'm a client advisor in our North America institutional business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I am pleased to introduce my colleague joining us today, Leander Christofides. Leander is co-CIO of JP Morgan's Global Special Situations Team, which focuses on distressed and event-driven credit. Over the next 45 to 60 minutes, we'll have a discussion on the distressed credit space and how it's been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. So Leander, I'll start with some questions i prepared for you. So we'll begin if you're ready.
1: Yes, thank you. Very good to be here.
0: Great. Leander, you've been a longtime investor in special situation and credit opportunities. And as we begin, could you give us a quick overview of your background and, from your lens, how you define private and opportunistic credit?
1: Yeah, thank you, Heather. So, as Heather said, I'm the co-CIO of the Global Special Situations team. As our team name suggests, we're global. I'm based with half our team in London, and the other half of our team are based in New York with my fellow co-CIO, Brad Demong. We have been the same team for over 17 years now, and what we focus on is detailed analysis on single-name corporate credit risk. And we focus on two defined sub-strategies. The first sub-strategy is distressed, probably the easiest to understand. And is typically focused on non-performing assets where a company goes through a process, either a debt for equity swap on one side, all the way through to liquidations on the other side, and often requiring new money along that journey. These processes are typically very intensive from a legal perspective. And typically, the average dollar price in our historical distress track record is about 50 cents on the dollar. And these are typically longer-dated transactions and average about four years' average life. And therefore, capital appreciation rather than income drives a lot of the returns in the distressed sub-strategy. The second sub-strategy is what we call event-driven and stressed. And these are companies which are typically under some stress, typically through short-term underperformance. They need perhaps a minor restructuring and sometimes also need new money as well. And these transactions typically have a slightly higher dollar price. Historically for us, this sub-strategy had an average entry price of about 75 to 80 cents on the dollar. And they're typically shorter dated. They average about two to three years. And as a result, income and capital appreciation are perhaps more evenly weighted in terms of the return profile. Perhaps the difference between the two also is that Because they're shorter-dated, the event-driven and stress transactions, you get to often recycle that capital. So you end up with a similar money multiple as a stress, but you get a second bite of the cherry, as it were. Now, some of these transactions, we originate and structure ourselves, and we're often the sole participant in them. And we call those bespoke transactions. And some of the transactions, we source from the market. As a result, We have a lot of flexibility in this strategy in that we target both private debt markets as well as tradable debt, and we use a relatively wide variety of instruments as well to express our view, and that ranges predominantly around senior debt, but also junior debt, reorganized equity, and claims, to name but a few of the instruments. However, when you think about both these sub-strategies, for us, they're the same transaction, whether we make the transaction ourselves or it's market-driven, distressed, event-driven. And we look, in essence, for the same three factors. Firstly, we look for a value cushion in that we typically like to enter assets with a 30 to 40% discount on average to the intrinsic value that we see in the asset. Secondly, we look for a catalyst. often that catalyst is an event that's often independent of capital markets that releases that value cushion. And then thirdly, we generally don't like to take big industry bets. So historically, for example, we've found it very challenging to, for example, play oil and gas or retail or shipping, for example, assets. Not because we have a bias. We are, in fact, industry agnostic. It's just that to fit those three criteria, it's very challenging in some of those sectors.
0: So certainly, Leander, the COVID-19 crisis has given rise to some interesting opportunities in your space, and we'll discuss that here in a bit. But perhaps first, it makes sense to talk about what was going on in credit pre-COVID-19. So to set the stage, what were key trends in the credit markets at the beginning of 2020?
1: Yeah, so if we set the scene for pre-COVID, we first of all had very high debt levels, To give you some numbers from the global financial crisis to today, corporate credit markets had grown from six trillion to over 11 trillion in size. We've basically doubled the amount of outstanding corporate debt since the global financial crisis. And we saw what happened in the global financial crisis with that six trillion. But the second factor as well was that you also had record high leverage. And the record high leverage really manifested itself in two ways. Firstly, overtly. And you could see that, for example, that the majority of investment grade debt was centered around triple Bs all the way through to the leverage land where we saw LBOs had gotten up to an average of 11 and a half times multiples. On enterprise value. And I think if you compare that to 2007, which was the previous peak, it would only reach 9.7 times. But also we had so much excess capital in the market that there were other covert actions happening around leverage. And that primarily manifested itself in EBITDA adjustments. And this is where a company, for example, say had 30 million of EBITDA. And then what they did was is they hoped that in the future revenues would go up and that they could cut costs as well in the future. And they performed all of those future revenue expectations and cost cuts expectations into today's EBITDA and called it adjusted EBDA. And so, for example, that 30 of EBITDA was only now turned into 50. And by 2019, we had seen that on average transactions had almost two and a half tons of adjustments to a CBDA. So where it looked like it was, say, six times levered, it was really eight and a half times levered if you stripped out the adjustments. And so it was interesting because at the end of last year, even the Fed suggested that we had not seen leverage levels this high since 1987, to put it into perspective. So extremely high leverage. And away from that, I think some of the other points that you're all familiar with around cub light. But generally, we saw, for example, Moody's came with the score of structural protection with the lowest on record. And it wasn't just cub light, there's also the ability for assets to be leaked out. You know, current news story out last week was around the sponsors Elliot on Travelport, where They're in negotiations now as a distressed asset with their lenders, and they were able to pull out a billion dollars' worth of IP out of the asset, which definitely creates a new dynamic into the discussions with lenders. So that definitely gives you a feel for the quantum of debt and the leverage that was built up in the system pre-COVID. Absolutely, and
0: following the COVID outbreak, Can you talk a little bit about how these trends have played out and how the market has changed?
1: COVID has clearly created a very constructive opportunity set to deploy capital as a special situations and distress fund. In April, we did see a record number of defaults in a single month at 19 defaults. I think the previous monthly record for monthly defaults was 17 defaults set in April 2009. And currently, defaults are running at just under about 5% so far, and the majority of the defaults that we're seeing are related to energy, retail, and leisure. However, future defaults are expected to be very high, in fact, higher than the global financial crisis. We think about it in cumulative three-year defaults, and the cumulative three-year default rate we expect to hit somewhere between 18 and 20% this cycle. And if you compare that to the global financial crisis, that peaked at about 15%. So we are only at the very beginning of that distress cycle. Despite the moving markets, we have significant amounts of defaults to come. If we want to put some numbers around that, if we first of all take the leverage loan and high yield bond markets added up across the US and Europe, they add up to just under $3 trillion in size. In addition, there's approximately a trillion in direct lending. And so, if you apply that 20% three year cumulative default rate, we're looking at about somewhere between 600 to 800 billion of defaults before you factor in fallen angels. Now, we talked about timing, but I think it's worth also just finishing up this question with a view on that historically, defaults lag what happens with markets. In the global financial crisis, defaults actually peaked in Q1, 2010, or 12 months from the start of the crisis. So we expect that defaults are really going to raise their head in end of Q3, beginning of Q4, and really hit their peak sometime in the early to mid part of next year. And there's a practical reason for that. I think most advisors that you speak to will tell you to actually default the the practicality of having, you know, a forward business plan that's credible, you need to have your supply chains reopen, and so on and so forth. So, a lot of defaults that are coming are not coming quite yet just because of that is practical nature, but will nonetheless come.
0: So, looking forward, what is the opportunity set you see today as well as going forward, and how have you been allocating capital?
1: So the way we think about the world is downgrades, defaults, and requirement for new money. Now, clearly, governments around the world have created new money programs that have been truly immense, so much so that I think you've seen a lot of whining for some of the most prominent investors in our space, such as Jim Simons or Howard Marks, especially around some of the actions the Fed have conducted around highly levered High yield companies. And we've definitely seen a strong snapback in markets over the last six to eight weeks, which has taken many by surprise. But actually, if we look at what's happened, there's been this significant bifurcation of the market. If we think about companies today, if a company has no new money requirements, it doesn't look like it has a restructuring need. It is definitely attracted very quickly a lot of real money influx. But the moment a company looks like it needs restructuring or new money, it has significantly lagged the rally. So much so that when you look at the price action of some of those assets in tradable assets, for example, they are either at the lows or setting new lows today. So the market is very situational, and a lot of the hot money is chasing these safer-to-own assets. But the moment it has any care, you're relying on dedicated, locked-up capital with specialization, which is harder to come by. The other thing to think about is not just defaults, which make a lot of the noise in the market. It's actually downgrades that also matter as well. And specifically, the reason why downgrades are so important is because they are tied structurally with the biggest holders of leverage risk in the market, and that's CLOs. Those EBITDA adjustments that I talked about earlier, there's no such thing as EBITDA adjustments in the bond market because they use GAAP accounting. But in a loan agreement, you can define EBITDA and you want. And so a lot of the most aggressive lending happened in both CLOs and in the private debt market. But specifically with CLOs and, secondly, with private debt lenders, where you have these triple C buckets, being breached. In this case, with CLOs, the important percentage of the portfolios that are triple C or below, the magic number to look out for is 7.5%. And today, we're already now at 11%. And this means that CLOs turn off their sub-fees, and we expect the triple C or below buckets in CLOs to actually climb up to about 33% of their portfolios. But most importantly, What it does is it restricts CLOs from being able to provide new money to some of the companies that have difficulty. And therefore, what happens now is that the problem companies are called become more problematic than they perhaps should be or need to have other capital come in to provide that new money capital. So it creates a little bit of a vicious circle for some of the weakest companies. And that's one of the biggest reasons that you're seeing this negative price action on these weaker performing companies. In addition, I think a lot of the financial press has been talking about, you know, a lot of companies being saved. We've had some very high-profile defaults and downgrades occur. For example, we saw a few weeks ago Virgin Australia, we thought that, you know, airlines were getting bailed out, and Virgin Australia had very strong shareholders, especially with Temasek in Singapore and Etihad in the Middle East, but they were not supported with new money in a file. We saw Swiss port in Europe not getting a bailout from the Swiss government because they didn't want to look like they were bailing out for political reasons as U.S. subsidiaries. So we can see that, you know, whilst there's been a lot of support, there's been plenty of high profile as well as smaller companies orphaned as part of those processes. So what have we been doing? Well, this should give you a good sign. Most distressed funds who bought a significant amount of assets in March have sold almost everything that they bought in March by today where we sit in May. And that should definitely give an indication of the future market expectations of the distressed community around the credit rally that we've seen so far. From our perspective, we've really focused on four categories. First of all, Assets that have quantifiable hard assets that we can value and then take a significant discount. What I talked about perhaps earlier in the call today. Secondly, we've been focusing on counter-cyclical assets. And thirdly, assets where we can get paid a premium for our restructuring and jurisdictional expertise. And then lastly, we skewed ourselves towards Europe versus the U.S. currently, just because of the way the government support is structured. But we'll talk about that later in a little bit more detail.
0: Great. Thanks, Bander. And it sounds like you and the team certainly have a robust opportunity set in front of you. And with the team currently managing a drawdown-style closed-end fund, can you touch a little bit more on how today's environment is impacting your allocation decisions going forward?
1: So, in terms of our allocation right now, we have looked at both private as well as public markets currently, but we're now looking, for example, on our analysis on private markets, and private markets typically have grown by over two and a half times where they were in the global financial crisis to about a trillion dollars in size. And we actually anticipate that 75% 75% of private debt portfolios companies are going to need either new money or some form of restructuring. And many of the private debt deals that exist in the market have not just high leverage, but they have what was called unitran structures. So if you think about historically, the capital structure of a company would have senior debt, junior debt, and then the equity. But then most of the new transactions that occurred, especially in the private debt markets, had just one tranche. So when the company underperformed, there wasn't this value cushion below them. So as a result, the recoveries were supposed to be less, and the losses are higher, and the likelihood of default also higher. We've actually spent a lot of time on the private debt side looking at a lot of the BDCs, the UK trusts. And what's really interesting about these structures is that when you do the analysis, the expected recovery on a lot of these smaller businesses is expected to be about 50 to 55 cents on the dollar. And the problem that you have as a manager such as ourselves is that there are so many small line items attached that the time and effort and opportunity cost to do the work on those individual situations to make the return on capital work means that the bid interest likely comes in at around 25 to $0.30 cents on the dollar. Now, what I would say to you is that there are big differences between direct lenders and private credit that have been afforded to large companies versus direct lending portfolios, which were associated to sort of small to medium-sized companies. So I would stress that some of these numbers that I'm talking about today are associated with some of the smaller end of the market. But I think nonetheless, a very important statistic given the low recovery that we expect to see on a lot of these private debt markets.
0: You mentioned that you're focused on more opportunities in Europe. Can you tell us a bit more about this and why your focus has been in this geographic area?
1: Yes. Yeah, so in Europe versus the US, if you look at some of the government programs that have been created. Europe has been much more effective in getting capital to companies due to their banking relationships as well as the social security systems that exist. For example, we think the US has actually, dollar for dollar, put more support out as a percentage of GDP than Europe. But the difference is that in Europe, most of its capital is being used to support companies ability to maintain employment. For example, unemployment grew by 11.2% in the U.S. in April. But if you compare that to, for example, in Germany, unemployment only grew by less than 1%. And that's very much because of those programs. In the U.S., most of the capital has been used to support unemployed individuals, so much so that in some cases, the income support received for people have been higher than what they received in employment. So I think if we look now in terms of our portfolio companies, or the companies that we've recently added in our portfolio post-COVID, all but one of the companies we've invested in have applied for and received commitments from government-sponsored, low-interest, unsecured loans in Europe. That is definitely not the case in the U.S. entities that we've invested in or looking at currently today. So you can see there's there's a very big difference between Europe and the U.S. from that perspective.
0: And Leander, what would be a turning point for you for opportunities in the U.S. to become more attractive?
1: So from our perspective, the majority of our pipeline of opportunities are U.S.-based. And the reason for that is because in the U.S., because you have less support for the companies, those companies are more likely to default. And therefore, from you know the seat that we sit in in terms of targeting distress and special situations, the pipeline of defaults are weighted much more to the US. So in addition to that, the US therefore is going to go through this process of cleansing its balance sheet so that as they default, they shed debt. And what emerges are stronger companies that can grow faster. And just generally, you should be more bullish around the US economy versus Europe in the long run, because you don't have a structure of zombie companies that are over that are just being put on life support, as it were, by their governments, but are actively able to increase productivity and grow again. So, therefore... The long-term future and pipeline for us is therefore much more skewed towards the U.S. So I think that flexibility to flex across a Europe waiting today and then a U.S. waiting tomorrow, I think, reflects the opportunities as we go through the cycle.
2: Are
0: there other credit-related asset classes that are a concern to you?
1: Well, a natural derivative of single-name corporate risk centers around CLOs. And we talked about the triple C buckets and the last provision of providing new money for CLOs themselves and the companies. But if we actually look at the CLO tranches themselves, they are going to become a significant focus as defaults increase, downgrades increase. And they are, as I said earlier, also the center of ownership for a lot of the problem credits. If you think about the mathematics around CLO tranches, Moody's predicts that the recovery for senior loans this cycle is going to be around the low 40s in terms of cents on the dollar recovery, and you compare that to the last cycle where it was nearer to very high 60s, low 70s, if you then think about, as I talked about earlier, cumulative default rates of about 20% or more, especially because it'll probably be higher than that for actual senior it means that The expected losses are going to be nearer to about somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. And that means that not just the equity tranche, but also the double B tranche, and maybe in some cases encroaching right into the triple B tranches of CLIs as well, will they themselves become distressed assets? And so they will be a very interesting target for investment over the course of the next two to three years as well.
0: And Leander, when you're looking at the opportunity set that you invest in, what types of deals have you passed on recently?
1: A lot of the transactions that came out earlier on post-COVID, as I said, have been related to retail, energy. And whilst we are industry agnostic, the investment process that we talked about earlier about having that value cushion, wanting a catalyst, but most importantly, not taking a big industry bet meant that it was very challenging for us to operate on this offer. We've analyzed over 200 credits and, you know, within the retail space, a lot of the bid interest that we've been able to get comfortable with has been around about 10 to 15 cents on the dollar, which, you know, in many cases, they're still trading at 20 to 30 cents on the dollar, which is still too high for us in that context. So that would be challenging. However, Nonetheless, we have been able to deploy a significant amount of capital over the last year. We can still expect, as I said, a significant amount of of music really hit in Q3, Q4. And when we think about deployment, where perhaps we were planning on deploying capital over a three-year period, COVID has accelerated that deployment and then made it more rapid. And it's also... Weighted it towards more distressed assets rather than the event-driven and stress strategy. And i would mentioned earlier the stressed assets are longer dated, and the recovery time for these assets is typically, as I said, you know, somewhere around four years, which likely means that even though we've turned down a significant amount of assets, we will probably likely have to come back to market in the thought fund to raise additional capital given the size of the pipeline that we're seeing today.
0: Great, thanks Leander. So we talked a lot about the opportunity set across the stress and event driven credit today. And what is your perspective on dry powder in the market?
1: So again, if I first will talk about the numbers that we think about. We talked about three trillion of leverage risk, we talk about a trillion of private credit, we talk about some of the fallen angels will come to the market. And we discussed earlier also that 20% cumulative default rate leading to about a trillion of defaults. If you factor that into how much capital we think is actually raised, dedicated towards special system distress, we think that is roughly three to four times the amount of capital that is actually available. In other words, there will actually be a supply and demand issue in the market, and that there's not enough capital allocated to the space versus the weight of opportunity that exists over the coming 24 to 36 months. And in addition to that, we would add that a significant portion of that opportunity set is European-based and also having individual European restructuring capability and jurisdictional capability is going to make a significant difference between the institutions that they can and can't operate successfully across the opportunity set as well.
0: Well, thanks, Leander. And with that, we will wrap up our call today. And we want to thank you all for joining us. And we appreciate your continued
2: partnership and hope you found today's call impactful. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55,143,832,080, AFSL 376,919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.